Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we are going to be talking about how the sound at concerts gets from the musicians to you. And that is a very important position called front of house. And today we are going to be learning all about the evolution of front of house. Hello, and welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to learn more about the program or view any interviews that aren't featured, visit namm.org slash library. And welcome back to another great episode we have here. at the Music History Project. And uh, today we're talking about front of house, which uh, is incredibly important, obviously, for for a live show, but often uh, kind of not taken advantage of, but just, you know, when everything goes right, you don't think much about it. Right. When things go wrong, everyone starts paying attention to it. Everybody. <laughs> uh, but we have a great show today just to talk about kind of the evolution of front of house and how that um, has imp- has kind of evolved over the years and uh, some of the issues that they've come across and solutions and all the innovative ways that they've uh, kind of built this, uh, this industry. And some of the fantastic interviews that we have today are um, of Rusty Boucher, uh, Buford Jones, Baja Fletcher, Bill Reeves, Scott Rogers, Harry Kays, and Lance Jackson. So some really amazing people. What a Um, list. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. You know, what's so cool is that these are the guys in the trenches right in front of everybody in the audience. So talk about having to have a hundred different skills and apply them all at the same time. It's really an amazing profession. And the more I've learned about it, the more I've really come to respect those that uh, are from the house. It's not just somebody turning knobs. It's an amazing process of setting everything up, knowing what the band is doing, what their goals are, working with them on not only just the order of things, but what the message is, how do they convey the sound that they're going for? It's really a cool thing. And I hope that we will all have a better appreciation for this occupation uh, at the end of this podcast. And it's cool that uh, Ashley, who does all of our pre-production of our podcasts, came up with the idea of doing this in order, so to speak, uh, sort of the evolution of this uh, job, this, uh, this position. And so, so much so that the first guy that we're going to hear from actually started back a house, which I love, you know, (laughs) before they had the position of thinking, wait, let's be in the audience and hearing what the audience hears. He was set up on a little table in the back uh, behind the stage. So I talk about the evolution of this process. Uh, So this is exciting and I'm glad you guys could join us. So let's jump right into our first interview. We're going to be hearing from Rusty Bruchet, and he's going to be talking about the very early days of front of house. What we were trying to do is just not in the realm of, of consciousness for the industry at the time. It, it, it was an industry where it was public address. Their idea of a, of, a, of a system was 10 watts. You know, it was the idea of 
having vocal at a basketball game or something like that. The idea of loud music and dealing with someone like Leslie West and semis full of sun amplifiers, all that, it was just, it just wasn't, there wasn't any industry at all. So we decided that we would just uh, wing it based on what what we, our experience, his as a recording engineer, mine as a musician and having built the stuff and then played with it. Um, and so we just uh, got the JBL catalog out. JBL at that time sold components, so you could buy individual speakers, you could buy drivers, you could buy horns, you could buy cabinets. And so we, we, we built a big system where we really increased the number of bass cabinets and horns. I think we went to like at least four double 15 cabinets per side and then we put a lot of, we used a lot of uh, radial horns at that time. The model number was 2350. And we used two inch phenolic drivers. They may made it, uh, an aluminum driver, but at that time it was too delicate and we didn't really know uh, how to, it took us a while to figure out how to build these systems. We had to, it was a lot of trial and error. And um, we blew a lot of things up as we kind of learned how to do things. and. Uh, the first thing we learned, the very first gig, was we, we knew we had to buy amp everything. So um, Maxon built a, a passive crossover, and we had highs and lows, and we used all the same connectors. Very first gig we did, we of course had the same connector for highs and lows. We switched them and we blew up all the horns because we were feeding them with low frequencies. So we thought, you know, this. This isn't going to work. If you and I, who built the system, get this, you know, we, how are we ever going to make this work? So, because if we can't figure it out, who can? So we uh, reversed the sex of, of the lows and highs on the connectors, and so we started thinking of the sound system as a system, and we started thinking of how do you set it up under pressure? How do you load a truck with it? How do you unload the truck? How do you set this stuff up? And so we were real obsessed with the packaging and the the way that the equipment worked and went together, and so we spent a lot of time on that. And that was really one of the real strengths of our company, was we were able to, once we got the system up big enough to where we could do a gig without blowing everything up and where we could keep up with the onstage amplifiers at the time, um, we then started thinking about um, the mixing side of it, we quickly realized we needed monitors, so we had to create monitors. We had to figure out how to split the microphones. The thing about that time that's hard to understand now is that there was nothing. So everything we needed, we had to either go and modify or find something that wasn't really intended for the purpose and make it work. Even simple stuff like line amplifiers, because you know, you hear you have this mixer and you have your lines going down to the stage and you got all these power amps. How do you, how do you convert from your output of your 1567 Altec mixer to 15 power amps? Well, you have to have a line amplifier to amplify that and to feed all that. And then you got to figure out that you got to transform or isolate all that. Because if, before, if we done it, didn't, if you have a hum anywhere, you blow everything up. So all that took a lot of time to go through that trial and error and, and, uh, and do that, but we ended up with a pretty stable system at the time, but we, 
we were using vertical racks for mixers and there was uh, another mixer the, the Altec 1567 was a six channel tube mixer that was the standard of the time but it only had bass and treble controls on the output there was another manufacturer called Grommies G-R-O-M-M-E-S that was I'm not even sure who where it came from or who it was but we found it and they had bass and treble on every input. So we, we went with Grammy's mixers and we would fill up these vertical racks with mixers and we would, we would mix, kind of looking over the equipment rack and, you know, and we'd have four or five mixers in the rack and, and we would actually go and we'd we be built snake cables to go out to the audience. But that took a while. I, I mixed, uh, I, I started, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go back. <clears throat> Once we got the system to where it was fairly pluggable and set up where we could set it up, Bassett kept calling up and kept booking us. And we, the, one of the gigs we did was for Three Dog Night. And they came through Dallas. And at the industry in that time was not like it is now. The industry then was a local promoter would promote the gig. The band would come to that town and the promoter would have to provide the audio and everything for it. So as they went from town to town, there was a new audio company or a new setup every gig. There was no continuity to it. And the audio obviously was really hit and miss and not very good. So we got this system up, sounded pretty good. And when Three Dog Night came to Dallas and used it, they said, we got to have it. We want to take it with us. And so we literally went down to the Ryder truck place and rented a yellow Ryder 18-foot truck. We loaded the sound system up in it. Maxon uh, decided he would go do the gig. He got in the truck. We hired a guy to go with him, and he went out and started touring with Three Dog Night. And, um, and so then, while he was gone, we were operating out of his garage at his house. We were building all the equipment there. We'd drive the rider trucks up to the end of his driveway. I mean, we, we knew we had to put wheels and everything, and we were packaging everything to, to load and move. So we'd roll all the equipment down the driveway and put it in the truck, and off he'd go. So the, while he was gone, I built the second system. And Zeppelin came through town, same, same exact situation. They came through Dallas. I went down and did the gig. They loved it, wanted me to go, and so I rented another rider truck, and I got in it, and so I was out doing Zeppelin. Maxon was out doing Three Dog, and, and when, we, when the tours were going to Lulz, we'd come back and we'd build no more systems. And we were able to go from zero to eight touring systems in about two or three years because we had systematized the equipment, and we had thought through how to package it, how to wire it up, how to how to make it where it's transportable and we could then start training people that we could hire to go out and do the gigs. And Jim Bornhorst, who you uh, interviewed previously, was a person that I hired as an audio engineer. And at that time, what I would, when I ran ads in the paper for employees, I would specify that they needed technical background. And I was actually hiring engineering type people because you had to understand enough of it because you had to keep this stuff running on the road and there was no way to do it if you didn't understand the technology of it. 
So I would hire electronic technicians, and in Bornhorst's case, he actually had a double E degree from A&M, which I didn't really appreciate at the time. I just appreciated the fact that he was technical, and he went out on the road and did Alice Cooper and a bunch of tours and stuff. And so uh, the company grew very, very quickly. I mean, I, I started mixing Zeppelin in 1971, and I mixed every show they did. And um, Maxon mixed Ze uh, Three Dog Night for a long time. And I also did James Taylor at that time. I did the James Taylor Carol King tour and mixed that and went on the road with them. And it, they, were, they were kind of uh, counter-cycled at Zeppelin. So I would do Zeppelin for a while, and then I would go out and do James. And then at the other time I was in there, building the gear and running the shop. All right, you guys, this is so cool. I love this already, and it's only the first segment. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the Music History Projects podcast on Front of House. As you can tell, we're going to have amazing stories uh, about Led Zeppelin and uh, tons of bands. It's really cool. I, I, this is such a fun um, idea that we had. I'm going to have to pat ourselves on the back because we have interviewed several Front of House engineers over the years and didn't really think, hey, wait a minute, let's put them together for this podcast. And starting with Rusty, I think, is you got to start at ground zero. And that guy was there at the very beginning and helped establish many of the nuances and some of the processes that front of house currently do uh, he was also the uh, co-founder of shoko which was uh, in the development of its own career uh, and position in the music industry which of course has launched into a lot of other companies doing the same thing and that is renting audio equipment for live sound events and so shoko was really uh one of the the major players at the beginning and still is and uh, rusty was one of the co-founders so that's kind of a a cool little thing so um gosh uh what are you guys learning so far? What What are your thoughts about this? Well, it's it's just kind of crazy because this position is relatively new, even though it's weird to say that. It feels like it is. Because, um, I mean, you think about music and sometimes you'll think about like instrument makers and that can go back hundreds, if not thousands of years. And something like front of house, which is essentially like for a recording situation, it'd be like the recording engineer's job or the producer's job. And this guy or girl is creating or they're taking the sound that the band's creating and they're making the sound that the band wants the audience to hear. And it's it's such an interesting position. And the technology changes that have happened um, recently. I mean, like I was saying, it's it's such an, a recent position. <laughs> mm -hmm. if you don't really think of it like that. Um, so it's just super cool to hear Rusty talking about the very early days and back of house and all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. And if something goes wrong, it's on them. Mm -hmm. So they're crawling up into the rafters if they have to, to connect <laughs> things. I mean, they're crawling under the stage if they have to. It's, you know, uh, it's really not that glamorous in some respects, but it's such, it's got to be a very rewarding position to be in, uh, especially if you get to work with bands and musicians that you want to work with. Right. Oh, and, yeah. it, and it's definitely one of those positions, too, where it's like if everything goes perfectly and you do your job great, you might not get noticed. It might just be like, <laughs> wow, the band sounded great tonight. And that's it. You know, right. so it's 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 great to see these kinds of people that are that are making the, the live music experiences as good as they are. Yeah. And I think, you know, Mike kind of touching on what you just said. 
um, it's like, it's amazing that it's still kind of like a new industry, part of the industry. Mm -hmm. But I think that that shows just how like revolutionary, like revolutionary it was for the fact that like, we can't even really remember what concerts were like before (laughs) front of house. It's like, well, that's just the standard now, you know, like (laughs) they just knocked it out of the park and you're like, well, of course that's always been like that. And you're like, oh wait, no, they used to just plug it into like tiny little amps and like hope for the best. And like (laughs) Maybe you'll hear it this time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it's everywhere too. I mean, uh, we've all probably been to churches that have front of house for special Christmas events or something like that. It's really, it's everywhere. And I Mm -hmm. think that that's, um, really telling of these original guys that we're displaying today, you know, these pioneers, all of which get a lot of credit in my book, not just of being there and doing something, but actually advancing that position. The next guy we're going to hear after Rusty is a quintessential example of that is moving the bar forward. And I think that that's what's to me very compelling about this. Yeah. And when I was putting this all together um, and I listened to Rusty's, and then I listen to everyone else that you guys are going to hear later on. You'll understand exactly why Rusty had to start and Rusty had to have, you know, hit the full story told because you realize just how how pivotal and important Shoko was in the beginning for a mm-hmm. lot of these front of house um, members. And so it's, you know, just had to start off with those roots and uh, get that get that origin story uh, going. So and I love hearing how they like would put like build these things together. And then he's going to talk a little bit uh, in this next segment that I love of learning how to like pack the truck (laughs) and how not a single space was like wasted. And they had to make sure it was like a Tetris game. And I'm the weird uh, organizational nerdy side of me really loved that story. And I was like, Oh, I like that. It's fun. But uh, getting back into this, uh, you guys have heard us talk for a little bit longer now, right? So let's get back into these interviews. Uh, we're going to listen a little bit more from Rusty. And like I said, talking a little bit more about the um, continuing evolution of Shoko and uh, also getting into lighting, not just sound, but lighting. Uh, so here is a little bit more from Rusty's interview. We started moving to a, actually have our own workshop in about 1970, a couple of years after we started, probably 72 or so, we got our first building, you know, and we had, uh, we had to build everything. We, had, we built our own electronics, we built our own cabinetry. The only thing we bought was JBL speakers. We, uh, we built our own power amps, I mean it was, we built uh, our own uh, mixing consoles, we, we finally realized that we had to go to a proper mixing board. So um, in 1973, 73, Bornhorst, I asked Jim to come off the road, come in the shop, and, and we needed to build a board. And I told him, I'll do the mechanical side of it if you'll do the electronic side of it. And Bornhorst, uh, had been thinking about circuitry and, and stuff and op, op amps, operational amplifiers had just kind of come on the scene. And he said, I had this idea, I think I can do a parametric equalizer, a totally variable equalizer so that you can vary the, the frequency of your boosting, you can vary the width of the, of the boost and you can obviously vary the cut and, cut and boost of that frequency. 
And at that time, of course, every, every console was all fixed. If you know, on a mid-range control, you'd have maybe two or three frequencies or four. And so the idea of totally variable parametric EQ was uh, quite enticing, obviously. And so we built the, this console called the Superboard. Uh, Maxon was heavily involved in it because he was, had all that recording background, so he would kind of, we would, we, you know, he and I office together, we would talk through the, what we wanted to do, and then I would translate it into drawings. I would hand draw everything and figure out, you know, the layouts of all the panels, and we, you know, we kind of worked together to create the features and how we wanted it structured, and then Bornhorst worked out all the circuitry and built all the circuit boards. <clears throat> so he and I hand made the boards. I personally wired the first one myself while he was still doing all the circuit board work. And, uh, and we, uh, it was a 30 input, eight output uh, console with, with uh, three band parametric equalization. The first, uh, certainly the first live console with parametric ever created. There was a guy that was doing parametric and, and recording studios at that around that same time. So, uh, the idea of the parametric EQ was uh, was not totally Jim's, but it was certainly from a live mixing point of view. We ended up building eight of the superboards, and um, they they did you know thousands of shows. I mean, we I, I I knew that it had to be bulletproof, so I built it like a tank. You know, the panels were. 3 sixteenths aluminum thick, and they were totally enclosed in aluminum. <laughs> and I used pigtails to plug them in instead of edge connectors. I mean, I, they were they were bricks, and um, and they really promoted our company big time. We used it for so many different artists. In fact, we didn't change to a different type of console until the early 80s, so it lasted a long time. Actually, mid 80s, but they would last at least 10 years. So anyway, we, that's how the, the audio thing started, and, and we, uh, because we were the first, you know, it was us and Claire Brothers, pretty much, and we, uh, we just did really well. We ended up doing most of the English artists. Claire and us kind of split the, split the big artists. We, we did Genesis and Phil Collins and Bowie and the Stones and Zeppelin and James Taylor and the Bee Gees and all kinds, and then uh, Claire did acts like uh, Springsteen and Elton and uh, Moody Blues and U2, stuff like that. And we, uh, we decided to go into lighting in 1972, pretty quickly after we got into audio. And the lighting industry was, uh, I would think, it, in my opinion, it was in worse shape than the audio industry as far as um, what what the what was needed? In fact, when you look back at my photographs of the early Zeppelin shows that I did and the early James Taylor shows, and you look at the stage shot, all that was on the stage was the PA system and the band gear. That's it, nothing else. And when in those early tours. We were able to tour the entire tour, the sound system and all the band gear in an 18-foot truck. And so, and that was part of your gig back then as, your, as the sound man, you were also the truck driver. So we, uh, 
we ended up buying our own trucks pretty quickly. The rider trucks were pretty brutal. And we uh, ended up buying a truck with sleepers so we could trade off. Because the way you, the way it worked is you'd get to the gig about 8 o'clock in the morning. You'd set up. You'd do a sound check about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You'd do a gig. And you'd pack up and you'd be out of the arena by 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning. And you had seven hours to get to the next show. So your only sleeping time you had was in the truck. So you had to... The first guy to drive was the toughest leg because you'd been up 20 hours at that time. So we uh, we did that, and uh, I did a lot of tours with just me and one guy, just the two of us doing the whole thing, and um, and it it was that was that was hard and actually quite dangerous the night in retrospect. Drank a lot of coffee to stay awake, but it it was. Uh, I lost my train of thought there, but it was an interesting, uh, an interesting time because there was that was it. The only the only lighting that was done was follow spot. So the the production manager on a tour or, or somebody with the act would call the follow spots, but that was it. So in, in the lighting, <clears throat> the state of lighting at that time was based on theater. It was all based pretty much in New York. And everything was, uh, you know, big giant cable, you know, just for one light, just, you know, cable that was huge. And the idea of a light stand was a, you know, cast iron base that weighed 100 pounds and a piece of, you know, two or three inch pipe. And you go up and you put C-clamps and crossbars and you can go up there and hang a light and run a big wire. I mean, it was just the most unportable thing imaginable. There was just no way you could tour with that. <clears throat> so we decided at that time that what we needed was uh, something that was portable, you know, a portable light stand. So we, we found these uh, air towers called Genie Towers that were uh, cylindrical tubes that were worked off of uh, compressed air. And I can't remember what they were originally for. But um, you basically pushed a button and this tower would go from, you know, about six feet up to about 15 feet up. And so we modified those and added a frame of lights and we mounted all that in a big case with wheels on it. You'd wheel the case in and you'd flip it up on end and take the top off, push a button and the light tree would go up and have all your lights. And we went to a much smaller cable and we built a dimmer we went with a dimmer pack. We, we were using Colortran dimmers at that time. And we put a, we'd have a dimmer rack that would wheel up next to this tower. And, and we were able to start doing lighting and, uh, in the same, same mentality as the audio where it was systematized. We, you know, we knew we had to be able to package this stuff to go into a semi. And we learned very quickly um, that when you have equipment in a truck, you can't have anything sticking out. Like one of the first things I did when I built the sound equipment is I didn't think about it. I would just screw bolts in from the outside and have bolt heads all along the, the cabinets where we'd built to hold the various components inside. And the very first gig we got to after all that stuff had been in the truck, it was just nothing but sawdust in the truck because those the vibration and all that had just completely eaten away you know, 
anything that was close to those bolt heads. So we thought, oh boy, this is not going to work. You're going to have to have everything flush, you know, and you got to think about how to package all this to where it all goes in the truck perfectly because any time you left space in it, that stuff would, was all on wheels. It would slam around and destroy itself. So we started measuring the truck and then we started making sure all the things we built were some multiple of the thing. We actually built big models at big tables with blocks that were the size of every piece of gear. So before a tour, we would sit down with our blocks and we would load the truck, figure out the most optimum load. We have to weigh everything because it was weight limits. And one of your worst things was to be going down the highway, pull into a weigh station and be overweight. They would side sideline you and make you unload or whatever. And if you're trying to make it to a gig, you pull on the gig. So we had to pay attention to all of the logistics they almost were overwhelming uh, the actual audio. You know, you kind of went into it with a love of audio, thinking that you were going to build the ultimate sound system, and you ended up being, you know, a logistics manager and a <laughs> shipping clerk and a truck driver and all this stuff that all you had to, because you had to do everything yourself. There wasn't a trucking company to call, there wasn't a bus company to call, there wasn't anything there. It had to all be created. That was uh, some more fantastic stories of, uh, from Rusty. And I just, like I said before, I love hearing how they had to figure out how to pack up that truck and make sure nothing slid around and would break. And I mean, that's a whole different level than anyone thinks of when they think of front of house is, is the packing and how you transport all these items and make sure they, you know, go from point A to point B in one piece. <laughs> Well, and they were learning and developing the processes as they went. You know, they were finding, oh, that's a problem. We got to fix that. Oh, well, we didn't think about that before, did we? We better do that. That's what's kind of cool about this story, too, is that the things that uh, are just sort of standard practices now had to be invented, had to be <laughs> worked out, had to trip a couple of people up first. Um, yeah. And I think Rusty and, and some others that we're going to be hearing from are the, are, were the guinea pigs because they were there <laughs> first. I, I do want to say something I think it's important and probably something that we ought to mention in most of our podcasts. And that is there is always a regret that we haven't interviewed everybody that's appropriate for this topic. Uh, some may have passed away before our interview started. Uh, some people are on our wish list that we haven't gotten to yet, but all of that to say that we're not by any means suggesting that these are the only pioneers. Uh, we are just showcasing the interviews that we have access to, to help tell this story. Yeah, very well said. And this is a perfect time too to say that we're always expanding the collection. We never stop. So if you have ideas for future interviews or if you know someone that we don't know, you can always shoot an email to library at nam.org and we'll we'll hear from you and get get in touch with you. Well said. Absolutely. Yeah, and we'll never say no to an interview. <laughs> <laughs> So coming up next, we've got Buford Jones, another really big name in front of house. Um, so we're going to be hearing from Buford Jones, and we actually did a full podcast on him, uh, episode 74. So if you really like what you hear in this next segment, um, you can listen to that podcast. It's this full interview, and we also have the full interview posted on nam.org. So if you want to see some video accompanied with that, you can head over there and check it out. So here is Buford Jones. 
I just happened to have a degree in electronics in, in college, and uh, I used that to fix stereos when I got out of school. This is leading up how I, to I got in the sound business. So I took the course in electronics and uh, was, was very pleased with that. I did well at it, and uh, whenever I left college and started working in repairing stereos, and I was enjoying that, working full days and repairing a piece of gear, which I still do to this day. Mm. So something in here breaks, I'll go in there and throw it on the bench, tear it apart, and maybe 70% of getting it working again. <laughs> I can't get it all working. Things have changed a lot, but uh, no, I, I, I'm really fascinated with that challenge to, to take something that's broken and fix it. So it's not on electronics, I'm that way in my whole house. I, I do everything here, uh, so I fix it when it's broken. So that was another uh, good attribute to have to get into this business. And whenever I uh, had uh, was working the stereo place, I had a friend come up to me and tell me that, uh, in fact, he was Rusty Boucher, who you've done a article on, uh, cousin, I think it was a cousin. And anyway, uh, he had come up to me, and of course I didn't know Rusty and Choco at that point. But we had met somewhere, this, this cousin of his, and, and he told me, he says, you need to go down to this business and talk to these guys. And I said, really? And I said, I had no idea what they were. I had no idea what sound reinforcement meant. Uh, my dad had put some speakers in our church, but I had really never got involved with sound systems. And uh, zero. Uh, no mixing anybody in a club or anything of the sort. So I, I went in and... Uh, <clears throat> After he had convinced me that you need to go down and talk to these people, well, it's, it was Shoko and Rusty Boucher, Jack Maxson, and Jack Cowmies. I knew nothing of Shoko, I, not a clue. I didn't know what they did. I, when I walked in, I saw some big black speaker boxes over there, and I said, wow, those look cool. I wonder what my guitar would sound like through them. So I, um, anyway, went in the office. Jack Cowmies, Jack Maxson, and Rusty Boucher all interviewed me. And, uh, of course, they wanted to know right off the bat, did I have a degree? And I said, yes, I did, in electronics. And I said, that's good. And then they wanted to know uh, if I played an instrument or had any music background. I said, yes, I did. I play instrument, study guitar. And they said, that's great. And I told them I had a studio. And they said, that's great. You're fitting right in so far. And then they asked me if I was single. And I thought, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Well, ended up that they hired me. And two years later, I found out what that, <laughs> if I was single, meant. I think it's pretty much meant is uh, we're going to be sending you on the road with the big suitcase and a box of Tide, and you're not coming home, and uh, which was definitely the case for me the first year. I took the job. I was making more money than uh, than I was preparing stereos, and I was totally happy doing that. Mm. So uh, here it is. I'm, uh, I said okay and agreed to it, and they said, well, come in tomorrow, and we'll sort your day. So I went on back to the stereo place and turned in my resignation, and the next morning I was at Shoko. And I was, I was soldering uh, uh, connectors onto 27-pair building cables, what we call the snake cables, the audio lines. And I'm uh, soldering these cables, and I figure this is my gig. This is what I'm doing because it's similar to what I was doing, bench work, bench electrician work. And I'm doing this about half the day, and uh, roughly, I think right after lunch, uh, Jack Maxson came in to me. This is my first day at Shoko. He came in to me at around 1 o'clock and said, go home, pack your bags, come back down, and you're going to be on tour with Three Dog Night. And I said, Three Dog Night? They play music, don't they? They're a pretty big band. Yeah, yeah, just go pack your bags. 
So I went home, packed my bags, come back down, loaded up the truck, drive to Atlanta, Atlanta Fulton Stadium. <clears throat> and the next day we did Three Dog Night uh, there in Atlanta. Hmm. And that was Three Dog Night's heyday. So that was a big gig. And I think we'd used both of Shoko's sound systems. When I walked in the door, they had just finished the second one. So, which I think they went on to build 12 or something like that. I'm really not sure of the number after I left there. And um, so here, yeah, my first day, uh, second day, I find myself on the road with Three Dog Nine. That's very rare. That doesn't happen to most. And it's no credit to me. It's just being at the right place at the right time. And uh, I was amazed. I look back many times and say that that was the start of my career. And many, and most, you know, have experience in uh, mixing sound in clubs and theaters and churches, houses of worship. And uh, I had zero. And so here, but I found it so interesting that once I'd set up the sound system, and Shoko had made things at that time that was pretty much fail-proof. I mean, as far as not only durability, but I mean, it's hooking it up. Mm. Uh, you'd, you'd really have to go to a lot of trouble to hook it up wrong by the configuration of the connectors you used and this and that. <clears throat> so I found it, to me, because I had an electronic background, yeah, this is, this is, I can get into this. And then playing guitar and music, and then once I saw the show, I said, wow, this is, a, this is just an amazing thrill. So there um, I quickly adapted. At that time period, uh, Three Dog, only toured on the weekends, uh, which is typical of country music touring, but that wasn't the case in rock touring. Mm. But I think they were doing well enough to where they, I suppose, they just took that option. They'd only work on the weekends. So suddenly, here I'm out with Three Dog Night, but on uh, Sunday night, they go home Monday, well, we get a call or go do the Guess Who, pick up the Guess Who. You're doing a show with the Guess Who, or It's a Beautiful Day, uh, the Kinks. Um, many other groups uh, during that time period, Wishbone Ash, uh, that we would, that's what would fill in the week and then join back with Three Dog Night on the weekend. And I uh, did that for a solid year. So that was my start. And I'll say, you know, there's a certain amount of advantages to being able to uh, kind of pick up from that level. But then at the same time, maybe there's a lot that I should have learned or, or could have learned that uh, would have made the, all the process somewhat different. But I'm not sure as to how because, no, I was just exposed to it, as I said, not being redundant, but it just all made sense to me. And it's just something that, yeah, I can get into this. So I was assistant to Jack Maxson, who was mixing the show. And I, I just, I'd never heard a sound like that. I'd never heard anything of that power, that uh, uh, quality and and the fact that what what Jack Maxson did with Three Dog Night was so impressive to me it burned an image in me that lasted forever and I think that's what I've always strived to get in my sound uh, final sound was the similarities and the techniques that Jack Maxson used on Three Dog Night. Mm. I was so impressed. Floyd Sneed the drummer and the way Jack could make his drum sound was just beautiful. Uh, powerful but not overwhelming. I think we hear that too much in modern day rock that where the kick drum is the loudest thing that you can hear outside in the parking lot two blocks away from the venue you can still hear the kick drum. But no, Jack had a, a very full and round mix and I've always tried to achieve that. So it was, uh, <clears throat> there I was on my way and, and uh, it, it kind of kept 
snowballing. And, and I was out for that solid year, I think, pretty much. I might have come home for <clears throat> a few weeks here and there, but most of that year, that was 1971. I'm sorry, I don't remember the month. Uh, I don't recall it off the time, but it was, it was pretty much a solid year uh, with Three Dog. Mm. And then uh, many other groups stemmed thereafter. I'm sort of curious, um, you've been uh, able to see this amazing evolution in technology change. What was that like from that first show as far as like fr front of house and how it was all set up? Was it even front of house back then? <laughs> oh yeah, well, <laughs> sometimes the promoters, they would want uh, to sell every seat in the house. So the typical thing that we see now in modern touring is of course the front of house and all the lighting equipment sit right in the middle of the room. I think in the early 70s, a lot of promoters didn't want to see that because they're giving up prime ticket sales. And, uh, you know, so they would put us in different spots and exits or somewhere where you're really not even hearing the sound. That'd be fine with them. But uh, no, after a while, I, I, I didn't follow that rule anymore, even though it was pushed pretty hard on these smaller gigs. And uh, because I wanted to hear both sides of the sound system. I wanted to know that all the sound system was only once. I think it only took one time at a concert that I remember. I don't remember who was playing at the night, but uh, it might have been the Kinks. But it's that point that I was sitting, the promoter made me go to one side real heavily. And I'm sitting way over there on the left side, for instance. And then somebody from the audience in the middle of the show comes up to tell me that, hey, buddy, your PA's not on over there on the other side. And me sitting off to the left, I couldn't hear it. So, or I didn't notice it as quickly as I should, okay? So uh, from that point forward, I said, I'm sitting in the middle regardless. And then I, I you know, that's the way I could hear both sides of the PA. But I've always been a stereo fan. And I think I was probably among the first at Shoko to actually start mixing in stereo, which was very controversial during that time period. Yeah, tell me about that. I do remember reading about that. Yeah. Well, everybody, you know, in most cases we, we see the mono, well, everybody hears the same thing. Well, then why do we even have stereo? That's like saying, well, you buy a stereo for your living room. If you don't sit dead center on the couch, then it's useless. No, it's not. It's, it's you know, we've come up on the technology changes so much in the uh, live sound world and a horizontal dispersion of the PA. So sitting off axis, off to the edge, you will still hear both sides. I think there's a bit of psychology that plays in this as well. Uh, for instance, if you're sitting on the left side, we visually see that we are closer to a guitar player. Uh, the imaging that we see, you expect that. Uh, let me put it this way, another way. If you were to go up to the balcony and sit at the top seat of the balcony, you'd expect to hear it in mono because it's already summed at that point anyway. But that's what your brain says. If I was to hear separation all the way back in the room, it would be unnatural. I wouldn't pick that up. So uh, sitting off to the one side, and I think stereo imaging and what we sort of get it mixed up with, and of course I eventually went into surround mixing. So there you go, that didn't even complicate the situation more. We can talk about that in a little bit, about Pink Floyd and the way the sound setup was there, which was the second tour I did in Surround. The first one was David Bowie. But uh, no, it's, it's an experience. And immersive audio in, uh, in live sound is something that needs to be done dynamically. Now stereo mixing, back to stereo mixing, no, I think the excitement that it adds to the mix uh, especially to what I call prime real estate, the people that sit 
paid the most money for their tickets. They're in the front. I, I see no reason for these people to get nothing but the best. Now, we want the best for the entire room, but we haven't conquered physics, and we're not going to conquer physics, and that's not going to happen unless everybody wears headphones. So it's just not going to happen. Now, now we've, we've come really close to doing this, but uh, it's just not going to fully happen. So I think that prime real estate, if they can get a real exciting uh, performance and and, and I pan things in the mix to where I see them, not necessarily the way they're the pan on the record. So the guitar player is standing on the left, I've got him panned slightly to the left. I've got, and uh, keyboards on the right, I've got them slightly panned to the right. The drums slightly spread. A very, it's, it's, very, it's, not, it's not discrete stereo, is what I call it. it. And so what that does in the imaging, it adds more to, again, the visual, visualization that I'm, I'm, I'm hearing it as I'm seeing it. Uh, so it makes it a much more natural environment. If you're off to the left a little bit, the guitar player is panning to the left a little bit, fine. My brain says he should be a little louder because he's closer to me and I see him. I have checked this many, many different ways and, uh, and, and listened to it and I find it uh, definitely more beneficial. So stereo has become the normal, but in the 70s it, it wasn't. And many people would argue that fact that you just couldn't do it. Well, I was going to do it, and and, and I, I might have been. I mean, there might have been several other guys doing it at the same time I was doing it. I don't know. I just sort of uh, found a direction that I was just looking for the best sound I could achieve, and I would do that. So, what did Jack and Rusty and those guys think of what you were doing? <laughs> well, whenever I chuckle, because. I'll tell you what, they were very lenient on me. Uh, it seemed like coming in at that time point and being young and, you know, uh, I, I made mistakes like we all make mistakes. And uh, they were very lenient. When I look back, I, I really, I wonder why. Uh, I should have well been kicked out for a few things that I did, but I think there must have been something else in there that they were seeing that I was doing right. So. Uh, I appreciate that. I learned uh, so much from Jack on being on the road with him. Rusty, I, I had, uh, on Led Zeppelin was, I would take out some of the additional PA when they would do their larger shows, but I had nothing to do really with the uh, engineering part of that. Um, but I would watch Rusty work and, and listen to his work and just mesmerized. I mean, again, once again, what he did with Led Zeppelin, you asked me earlier the changes in, in the early part in the 70s against what we have now. We made tremendous uh, achievements and advantages in, uh, in, in, in technology today. But I'll tell you what, I still, I mean, just maybe I was young, maybe I, I look back at those shows of Three Dog Night and Led Zeppelin, and they still were so powerful. Uh, that experience and that performance, what both those guys did with those groups. Mm -hmm. And do I, I go to a show now, am I more satisfied than I was then in 1970, say with all the equipment, all the new things? No, I'm not. It's like, um, I understand that we have better, better coverage and flexibility, but still, and there was a lot of things to be learned, but I think Shoko had, uh, between them, uh, just the right concept and putting the sound system together to enhance 
uh, live concerts. So I, I accepted that uh, in a way that it was uh, it was exciting. I couldn't wait to get these speakers up. You know, I often joke that uh, it's not a joke really, but I often say that you know the two hours of showtime of a given day out on the road, I'm fine. It's the other 22 hours <laughs> of getting the A to B to C to D and uh, and this and that that's uh, quite taxing. And uh, but that showtime is priceless. You know, as we see commercials about. Uh, and this and this and this is priceless and well it's that way and I think that's what would drive all of us as young people working in the live sound industry to um, to do just that to, to to have this exciting experience and it lasts now there's nights that it's not so exciting that's the thing about live audio and I think against uh, studio recording and studio mixing you know in studio we have a rewind button we have a stop button, and in live sound, you got one shot. There is no stopping. There is no rewinding. I think there's been several <laughs> concerts that, after it began, I wanted to tell uh, you know get on the talk back to the band while they're playing and say, hey, hey could y'all just stop and start it over again? I'll nail it from the downbeat this time. <laughs> no, it's not going to work that way. You got you got one shot to get it right. So that that really strengthens that challenge to get this done right. And um, you, 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 you got this approach that, you know, the, the, the sound console to me is a musical instrument. And it was in that time period when I started. I realized it right away that, hey, now I'm playing music, but I'm not, I don't have a typical guitar or keyboard to play it on. But the sound console is an instrument and it should be played musically. That's where I think music background is such a benefit to the engineer. When I approach that, I'm detached from the band that's on the stage, but I'm still playing an instrument with them. I'm still playing music with them. So once again, that was Buford Jones, and I highly recommend checking out his full interview or the podcast we did on him. Just like story after story, just <laughs> so good. Um, and it really shows how big of a company Shoko was in everything to do with events. Very cool. Oh, yeah, yeah definitely just scratches the surface of of his career um it's almost a little embarrassing but we've covered it pretty well uh, uh, previously so i don't feel as bad and it fits in nicely with these uh little segments from several different people who were helping with the evolution of the position of front of house so i, I do like that yeah and i just love that like day two they're like pack your bags you're going to go on a trip. <laughs> you don't have a wife or a girlfriend, right? Okay, good. <laughs> Here's some laundry detergent. You'll be back in a year. <laughs> so it just shows how like how hard that that position can be of being mm. on the road for like over a year at a time and I mean he was hopping between uh different tours like just Definitely wear, uh, wears on you, I'm sure, over time. But and they still can make they can still make sure that the each night it sounds great. Mm -hmm. So even after all that, yeah, absolutely. And in the case of Buford, you know what's interesting to me is now he's teaching classes. He's he's mentoring other people in that position or who want to be in that position, and he's elevating. What's the word I'm looking for? He's elevating. Uh, elevating. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> He's elevating that position by not only teaching people, but bringing the bar up a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. What I mean by that is things like, hey, wait a minute, let's make sure in the contract that you do not put in 
you drive all night from to the next gig and then be in charge of everything that allows the performer to just take a nap during the day, wake up for the concert and go on and have the front of the house guy up 24 hours at a time, you know, let's pay, pay some respects to these guys and allow them a chance to rest. I, I think that's, you know, a very, very compelling argument that if they are expected to get everything to the next gig, then set it up and have it perfect and then be completely on when the performer is on, they need to have that time to rest too. And little things like that were not really considered in the early days. And I think that, again, he has raised a bar uh, for everybody in that position as a result. Another guy, nice segue, who's <laughs> done the same thing in a different area, um, mostly in country music, is the next guy we're going to hear from, and that's Baja Fletcher. And Baja has a lot of great stories, a lot of great history. And um, I think my favorite uh, memory is that uh, in addition to front of house, he was also um, very much interested in pro lighting as part of his gig. Uh, in fact, he's the event, I think, producer, I think he calls himself now for Title Live, his, his company, and covers all aspects of a live event and not just the audio, uh, which is ironic because when I interviewed him, uh, my assistant, I'll blame it on my assistant because for once it wasn't my fault, uh, hit over the key light and it, the hot light went right towards Baja and you're like, and I sort of out of the corner of his eye, he grabs the pole and then puts it back and keeps talking. I think he was talking the whole time. Like he didn't miss a beat. It's like, wow. this guy has been there when a lot worse things have happened than that. <laughs> but to me, I was like, okay, we're going to hurt the lighting guy with a light. This is not probably very good for my resume, but uh, that to me, that those reflexes made me think, okay, this is the perfect guy for his job. <laughs> and also that was nothing compared to all the stuff he's probably yeah. dealt with. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> wasn't the first right. light that he caught. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get right into Baja Fletcher. A friend of mine, it was somebody we went to high school with, he took my place, this guy, Asa Kelly. And so Asa got into it and he knew he wanted a man's audio. I want to get into the audio. So he went to work with a local sound company. Uh, back in uh, our town, and uh, and I could jump back in with the band. It just like fell into it. Well, I ain't gonna go hang shingles or nail wood or whatever. This is too good, so I did. And Asa ended up. Uh, it's kind of a cool story, man. He ended up audio enough to get him an audio company started in this little town where we went to school at in Portsmouth, right outside Virginia Beach. And I think it's called Treetop. He had, but of all things, he landed one of the classics in country music, Merle Haggard. And he probably had that account for, I would say probably, you know, between 13, 14, 15 years. And, his, and of all things, his, he mixed the front of house. And his wife, Cecilia, who had been high school sweethearts, they went all the way through school, she mixed monitors. <laughs> and they did Merle Haggard from back in Virginia throughout all forever and ever and ever. And uh, he's not with us anymore. I had a heart attack and passed on. But um, that's wow, kind of that a cool little trivia. Yeah, no doubt. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That is a good gig to get, I bet. So, uh, and then, so what I, our locally, our, well, one of our uh, managers, um, where they were, he was part of a promoter on bringing some um, <laughs> music to the beach. 
and they had a concert. It was called, uh, I think it was called Concert by the Sea, but it was actually out in a, on an airstrip in a soybean field kind of. It's kind of near the beach, you know, a few miles away or whatever it was. But uh, it was back rock and roll, and he said, man, I've got this. I've, he had access. I remember, uh, I think it was Ken He. Uh, uh, was Uriah Heap on that one? But the one that got me, he entered, he says, man, hey, I've got this little band from Texas. And uh, he had some album promo there, and it was their uh, uh, first album, I believe it was. And second, actually, he had the first two, and they were just releasing one that year. And it was that little old band from Texas, ZZ Top. And they were probably third, fourth bill in the act, you know? And I was the guy that he hired to get the stage crew together. So I've got all my friends out there working. Well, it worked out for about halfway through it, and then they started partying and having on, and who's the lonely soldier at the end of the evening, you know? So, But all gratifying, I guess something good come out of it. They uh, noticed enough, and uh, I really don't know how the true story, to tell you the truth. They called me at my house back in Virginia Beach. Some way got my number. I didn't give it to them. But through their management, maybe, or somebody through there, and asked me, said, hey, we're going out headlining next year, and been looking for the right guy, and... That enough to, I mean, yeah, sure, yeah, okay. You know, like, they took a grain of salt because that ain't going to happen. And then uh, they come back through town later on in the year. Uh, I think we're opening up maybe Alice Cooper, 1973. Called me again, invited me out to the show. Oh, God, now I got the book. Go out there. And once I got over there and I seen him, and I'm going, this is what I want. Yes. And uh, I didn't, then once you want something like that, you, you know, you don't think it's ever going to come. But I got, uh, I think it's around March, got my plane ticket, took off to Houston, and I, uh, Started, did their very first headlining show in 1974, April the 1st. I'll never remember. Yeah, in, in uh, NC State. Mm. And um, started right off there and kind of turned into a circus boy and away I went. That's amazing. Somebody said, how'd you get into business? I said, well, I used to surf a whole lot. And I was going surfing one day and I got on the wrong bus. And ended up in the I don't know. <laughs> so what was ZZ's setup? Back then? Yeah. Uh, it was pretty straightforward, man. It was... Uh, Drums, three-piece band, of course. Frank Beard on the drums there, one drum riser. Until this day, I want to think up until we did uh, just in the last few years ago. They had they set up the same distance. Didn't matter from then till then. It was like 12 foot from downstage edge, basically. And on either side side of it was he had these amps called Rio Grande, but they were basically Marshalls and just uh, covered and grilled and you know had, and tweed and he had his own little palm tree logo that went in the middle the Rio Grande but it's basically three stacks of marshals per guy three for the bass three for Billy mm. and pretty much on Billy's stuff everything on the amps was wide open all the way across all of his stuff come from out of his guitar he did he used absolutely no effects he used one slide bar it was uh, guts and I mean guts and glory rock and roll and the slide bar which I was responsible for, thank you. That was my they carried it in my pocket. Didn't matter where I went, never left me except for when he played it, and set out and he'd toss it to me and I'd run it back, put it in into the night, man. I went right back in my pocket till the next day, travel with it. So, but it was cut from um, a drum throne. Is where he got the perfect gauge that happened to work out from him. Hmm. You mean one of the from, Yes, uh huh. Wow. Yeah. And he got it. That's where the first one came from, was from the drum throne. And that was the perfect gauge size back then. I mean, you know, now it's my gosh, whatever the gauge and glass and everything else. I mean, but everybody has their own. And it was polished down, of course, rubbing everything out and ground out. And, and so I didn't want to lose it because I didn't know if I had another drum throne handy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
So how did you mix them back then? Well, they were, um, the, our first engineer, we used a company, uh, which was when I first started with it, was Shoko. And I, it might have been somebody that you've done, one of my heroes and legends of the industry, Buford Jones, was our house engineer. And uh, he was fabulous. I mean, he went on to bigger and much better. I mean, he did that Pink Live Live, you know, the, uh, the him and Morris Lighting, who was uh, also a really high-profile production manager. And he did the Pink Floyd uh, tour. He did the Blues Brothers, kept up with John Bellucci. You know, he had, uh, yeah, I mean, these are maybe, and I was just a beach boy with flip-flops and a pair of, boat, you know, beach shorts on and tank. It's like, who's the dude? I didn't, you know, like, jalapeno, what is that? Hala who? I didn't know nothing. I was not, but I think in the long run, I've become a pretty good transplant for Texas. <laughs> but it was real basic. The big old cones they had, um, uh, fiberglass cones. And I mean, you know, we traveled in three 20-foot trucks. You had one for sound, one for lights, and one for backlight. But we didn't have the backlight yet. We didn't have it. We had a, uh, they had sleepers on them. So that's how I, the first two months I rode with the sound guys. And my other partner, uh, Dave Blaney, who was the lighting guy, he rode in the light, over with the lighting guys. And then they had just a regular, like, rent, you know, U-Haul. They had somebody drive it until we got our truck with the sleeper on. Then we were part of the team. But the first two months, I got to travel with Buford and Morris. And, man, it was, I, I, I just, th that was priceless. That's the kind of stuff you can't put on your credit card that you'll laugh and laugh forever. <laughs> True, good, really good at what they did, but it was like early stage. And they were, and like I said, they went on as technology did. And, I think Buford is now working with the Myers company at uh, Sound, Meyer Audio, and uh, I mean, one of the big representatives of it, and he was a big part of installing the, uh, I think it was in a Mirage for the Beatles. Yeah, so he's got, he's done so many, these guys, man, I mean, they're just, they were already dinosaurs before I got there. Yeah. Baja, what do you think have been some of the big changes to front of house since you first started? And uh, audio? Yeah. Wow. Um, as far as what, the consoles or where you, you know? Yeah, like, I mean, just this. <clears throat> oh, my gosh. Well, I mean, you know, from, from back then, like I say, everything was just so basic. You only had just, I, I want to think, and, and it was a Sun PA. It's kind of almost like just a little bit over of being PA on a stick, you know? That, that was what you used back then. You had some little tripods and put some cabinets up over here. And, and boy, if you got a horn in there, you were, man, throwing it. You were big dogs. But uh, basically, man, I mean, we did a, in club days and things like that. You kind of went. And then I go to, it was so funny, I said into a horn. And then I go down to like in the 70s. And, and then they... Um, Shoko and I had these, oh my gosh, they were cones. They went the width of a truck and about yay high and you stacked them and then they had their amp that you attached and had hinges on the back and blow it in the, you know, in the cones and speaker in there and it was just, it was like a big baffle, a big megaphone. I mean, in a certain way and then, uh, but out from the front of house mix itself, uh, Gosh, man, I'm just watching consoles and stuff through the changes through the year. I, it, I don't, like I say, it's, I, I just really don't under, you know, I don't partake in nothing. I'm one of the jack of jacks or what. I watch, make sure to go in and get the house built and everything around it and do it. Hire, surround yourself with good people, okay? I'm being really honest. And to go in there, I know just enough to get me in trouble. But to sit and watch these guys, each of them, through audio, lighting, video, uh, video is the one that's really just taken off the charts these days.
but to see the different consoles, especially the audio. And like, I'm using Keith Urban as an example, telling you about having a full-fledged analog rig over here, and then out front, it's totally just separate, it's just a, a digital. The footprint's not, the profile's not as near as big, everything's there, and I mean, you're consistent, you got, uh, it's still a lot of work, it's a lot of work building the show. And once you get it in there, it's, it's you know, consistent or whatever, you know, you know, you still, like I said, man, these guys are still, you got to have a live person to, to do these things in there. And I think it's so valuable, the house engineer. Some people get their priorities mixed up. First, two of the most important people in the building, the, the monitor guy's got the toughest, I think, because of he's eyesight and he's only not far away from all the artists, making them really, really comfortable. And to me, that's the zone. Build them to where, it's like a house. Don't you feel comfortable when you go sit in your living room and you got the same surroundings every night? And as close as you can, the footprint's just about the same. It's the same distance each time you're playing. I mean, you know, we're just moving air and volume out there. And it's like, <clears throat> I like to see these artists that like, you know, their amp, they want to hear. Instead of the cosmetics of all getting and not being and it's all production without all this stuff hidden, I, I, I'm still old, say, old school. There's nothing to me, man. Don't hide that thing. If that's what makes you feel better, more comfortable, and you got there, and you if it's seven and a half feet, it's the same, do it. That's that. They get comfortable. And then when they're performing, they're going to be performing their best when they're hearing, and they got their monitors and all the world, and their amps, and everything's in that pocket. And like bass player, drum, all these guys, that's why they like play close together. You know, some of you better, man, you'll see them, man. They're just all real tight and right there. That's that's in the pocket. And then on the other end, I look it out in the perspective going out into the house. Well, he's only going to mix something as what's coming out, as good as it is to be, you know, and then find to, and just getting that feel. So once again, that was Baja Fletcher on the Music History Project podcast. We were talking all about the evolution of front of house today, a very exciting topic. And next up, we're going to hear from someone very cool, Bill Reeves, who, along with Lance Casey Jackson, uh, started the organization Roadies of Color United, which is a really great organization, getting more people of color into the music industry, um, getting them on more jobs in front of house and um, other staging jobs, other touring jobs. Um, it's very a, a very cool organization, um, and we were really excited to interview Bill and Casey for NAMM's Believe in Music Week in 2021. Yeah, absolutely. And talk about guys who are changing the industry and, and expanding it and raising the bar. Uh, these two guys, for sure. And I'm very proud of the fact that um, we're able to document their story because it's a good one. It's really, truly individually, as you're going to hear, um, they have amazing careers and they came together to try to advance that position. And, you know, just sort of no brainer stuff, maybe to some people, but to others, what they do has been so important and maybe just some slight changes have had to occur and they just present it. You know, uh, one, one thing that really struck me, um, about their mission is the fact that there aren't a lot or weren't a lot. There's more now, um, roadies of color who, uh, would work in country music just because um, that's not necessarily uh, where those producers would think of 
hey, wait a minute, you know, we always get these guys. And instead of always going with who you had, um, Roadies of Color United tries to introduce other people who may be more qualified or may be more convenient or closer, or they have more um, uh, a background in a particular arena um, that might be make more sense for that producer to hire that person. I just, I think what they're doing is clever and very, very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also I think they mentioned too, that, you know, they're looking at not just necessarily um, the diversification of race, but also gender mm-hmm. there, you know, they include that in there as, as well. And they're just, it's all, you know, all encompassing of whoever is the most, you know, whoever can do the job, whatever is the most convenient, whether it be location, whether it be availability, any of that stuff, just opening it up to anybody, um, you know, that would be the best option, not yep. just maybe who you've always worked with or who you've, you know, so-and-so and through that and all that kind of stuff. So I think that that's great. And, uh, and Bill Reeves had, has had a great career mm. um, even before Roadies of Color United was formed. Uh, my, I love I was actually part of the interview with Dan when he interviewed Bill. And I love, I love the story of how he kind of got into it, into initially like stage and, you know, doing back of, you know, back of house and then front of house. And it was uh, a play that his mom took him to Peter Pan. (laughs) And he loved the story, like all kids do, but he was fascinated with like how they flew the different sets and how they were moving around and all this kind of stuff. And he actually, got into um, like uh, tech theater and did all the background in theater, which I think is, you know, just kind of shows that even if you, you know, you might love music and that might be your background, but it can also be a theater background that then evolves into this, you know, and just in general of shows, uh, we all need front of house for any type of show. Mm -hmm. So I just loved his background. I thought it was, it was kind of adorable and very charming of Peter Pan. He was like, how is he flying? How are they moving these sets? Uh, and then he had a fantastic career um, touring with like Earth, Wind & Fire and just amazing, amazing tours. And then, you know, kind of after all of that, as if that wasn't enough, you know, now he's going to do Roadies of Color United. So just he keeps, uh, you know, contributing to this industry mm. that he loves. Um, so we're going to hear a little bit from him now, mostly talking about uh, Roadies of Color United and what that means to him and why they formed it. So uh, here is Bill Reeves. A good friend of mine and colleague, Casey Jackson, and I um, have worked and toured with each other for probably 30 years. I first met Casey um, in the early 80s. Anyway, he and I have been touring colleagues and friends since the mid 80s. So now fast forward to the early 2000s and we were sitting around one day uh, talking and realized that uh, in the complaining to each other about the fact that the uh, concert business really didn't um, acknowledge the 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 worth and the existence of a fairly good sized uh, segment of the working population, which would be roadies of color. Um, 
in the media of the day, my 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 whining was that looking at uh, the the early early version of PLSN, and there used to be a magazine called All Access, and and Polestar was just getting started then, and and other uh, kinds of media, you know, front of house magazine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In the media of the day, my thing was, you know, if you looked at if an alien came down and wanted to find out about the concert business and just started reading the various magazines and or journals of, of the time, uh, they would think that it was completely uh, um, only white people worked in it as, as technicians. You know, there's, there was plenty of, of uh, emphasis on, on black artists you know because we know there was r&b artists and who are hot for a minute or whatever but when you read the the trade journals um all you ever saw was white guys our business like a lot of businesses you tend to hire who you know so the black tours and the black tour managers of which i'm one tend to hire guys that that you've worked with before who are all other black guys and the white tours and the white tour managers tend to hire guys and women that they always work with who tend to be white people. So you have these two worlds uh, in concert production um, that are separated uh, by race, which we've all come to understand is probably not the best way of looking at that because um, there are black guys who are just as competent and just as efficient and just as talented as white guys uh, who never get a call from white tours. The same also happens the other way. There's, there's white guys who are just as competent and efficient and talented who never get a call to do tours for black tours. Although because of the way the world is set up, it doesn't quite balance out. It would kind of be okay if, if it was like this, but it's kind of like that. White guys get black tours all the time. Black guys don't get white tours. They do occasionally, but not all the time. So we felt it's sort of an imbalance here that needed to be addressed. And since this was something that was in everybody's consciousness, uh, roadies of color uh, kind of became more, um, more, prominent or people who of good faith who said, you know, we need to think about the systematic systemic racism as it exists in the concert production business, as it does in the larger society. And, um, and uh, people looked around and said, Oh, look, here's a group called roadies of color. Let's go ask them what they think. And, and here we are today. You're talking to me. <laughs> which probably, to be honest with you, would not have happened a couple of years ago, if not for the twin uh, hits of the pandemic, which has given us all time to sit back and consider because we we're not working. And then the rise of the Black Lives Matter and all that, how that's kind of changed everybody's consciousness about systemic racism, which, which is a thing that we have to deal with. It's always been there, but I think now it's a little more 
present in people's, you know, mind. So, Rose of Color, social network, 2009. We're now in the process of, uh, we actually just finished up our paperwork last week to become a 501c6, so we can be a, a little more formalized and, and regularized. Um, and once we get that done, we're going to start shifting our membership, which up to now is listed, has been sort of existed as a Facebook group and sort of a loose social thing and shift them into the more formal um, organization of a professional trade association. And concurrently with that, we're going to take our members' data um, you know, and publish a sort of a, a database of people who who are competent in their various specializations. We will take our members' information and vet it. So if they say, well, I did this tour and that tour, we'll call those people up and say, did you do this tour? Did so-and-so do this tour and that tour? What do you think was he did he do a good job? So that when we get back to work and people start hiring, uh, what we've been asking is that when tour managers and, and production managers are hiring, uh, their first person they're going to look for to hire is the guy that they did the show with last time, which is fine. That's, that is as it should be. But if that person isn't available, what we're going to ask people to do is instead of just asking your guy who he thinks, expand the search a little bit and think about diversifying the crew. And they'll be able to do that by going to our resource guide and saying, oh, well, we need a, you know, we need a monitor guy. And the guy that I wanted to hire isn't available because he's already out. Maybe I'll take a look at one of these guys in this guide. Oh, here's a guy who's done 87 tours and is conversant in 37 different consoles and and has sterling a sterling reputation. And maybe we'll hire um, a black guy for this position rather than just one in a series of white guys. Um, not that hiring a white guy is a bad thing, but you know we should at least give a thought to diversifying the crew and having it be a little, little less monochromatic. Mm. <laughs> I guess would be a good word. So anyway, that's a slightly abbreviated edition of who and what roadies of color were and are about to become. Well, congratulations on the progress. I think what you guys are doing is um, very important. And, um, you know, I, I was thinking about one of my favorite songs, uh, Sam Cooke wrote, A Change Is Gonna Come. Yeah. And it was in the 60s, and we're kind of still waiting we're for that. We're still waiting for that. You know, um, and, and that, as much as that's frustrating, um, we've got to celebrate the smaller steps because yeah. obviously this is a monumental climb and one that you know people like me i think are embarrassed about um yeah well you know what and, and, and look at progress go ahead no i was just gonna say and the interesting part about that is that 
when we started, we being Rodis, me and KC, basically, as well, David Lawrence, um, who's like the third guy in our little group of outreach. You know, we do this kind of a thing and we've done seminars and webinars and and all sorts of Zoom stuff. Um, and interestingly enough, a lot of people have expressed sort of the same sentiment that you just did was that, you know, I always considered myself uh, a reason. I'm not a racist guy and, and I never really thought about it. But now that I'm thinking about it, I realize that, that I never, you know, it never occurred to me to look elsewhere to hire or to consider um, the fact that all the crews I've ever walked on were all white. Um, a lot of people have come to me with that sort of, gee, I've never thought about it before, but you know what? There is something here that we should address, something that we should think about and and see if there's something that can be done. So um, we're much encouraged by those kinds of expressions. Yeah, and, and as I uh, mentioned to Casey, I, um, I'd be honored to be in the position to help with that dialogue. You know, one yeah. of the things that uh, um, I'm, ha I'm happy and honored to do is to interview you guys, put you guys in our oral history program where you well deserve for your amazing careers in the industry and help promote what you guys are all about and, and your mission. So uh, I hope yeah, we can well, play thank a small role in that. We, we appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not going to happen overnight, but it's, you know, the dialogue has started. And one of our missions is just to keep the dialogue going. And it's not like everybody's going to wake up tomorrow and go, you know, hallelujah, I now see the light. It's not like Scrooge waking up on Christmas morning and saying, okay, I got the message from the three ghosts I saw last night. Um, it's not going to be like that. And the other thing that's going to happen, and I've actually written, I've actually written a couple, three articles in some in PLSN and Polestar, is what we hope is that when we get back together, when we get back on the road, that we don't slip into, which will be a very simple thing to do, is kind of slip back into the old mindset. Because what's going to happen is when we when the all clear is sounded you know hopefully you know we're all hopeful that it's sometime next year spring summer certainly by the fall we all expect that we'll be back to running up and down the road and doing shows we want to keep this conversation going so that it doesn't just become something that we thought about during the pandemic and we immediately forgot about it when um when we got busy and have to put a tour together and go find some trucks and gear and get out there and climb on the bus and let's go we're hopeful that people will keep this conversation going so that it doesn't slip into the past which is as in the past yeah. which is a very human thing to do is to slip back into the comfortable the comfort zone of doing business the way that we've done it before in the past. So that was Bill Reeves talking a little bit about Roadies of Color United and just uh, what their mission is and what they're trying to accomplish, which I think 
like we were saying before, is fantastic and mm. much needed, I think. Very uh, important. Yeah, absolutely. And, and definitely embraced by the industry, I think, too. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, they're seeing that that need to change and to kind of pivot and uh, refocus a little bit. So it's Absolutely. Great. great stuff. Very good. You know, it's really neat to uh, be in this position. I, I don't say this as often as I should, but it's so cool to sit toe-to-toe to somebody that as they're talking, you're admiration just rises. You know, the more they talk, the more you think, okay, well, I was here and I knew this much about them, but now I feel their passion. Now I embrace what they are embracing. And I I love that. And and that was definitely the case uh, with Bill, without a doubt. Uh, You know, another guy that's really important um, to this story, in my estimation, is NAMS front of house. We, you know, we, we have a lot of cool events at the NAM shows and um, it's neat that uh, we got to know and uh, interview uh, one of the pioneers for the, for the NAM uh, front of house and live sound as it was developing, particularly in the last 20 years or so. And that's uh, Scott Rogers, uh, lovingly known uh, around the NAM building as Scotty. Uh, <laughs> but I don't think anybody outside that called him that, but <laughs> Um, sadly he, he has passed away and, uh, this is a uh, particularly poignant for us that got to know him, got to love him, um, and admire him, uh, for his contributions, uh, not only to exactly what we could hear and see at the shows, but his entire career, which is, was very vast. Um, then there's something telling if you don't mind, uh, on a kind of a, a poignant um, note, one of the things that uh, really impressed me about the, the kindness, the gentlemanness of, of Scott was, um, during a, uh, tribute program. Um, many of you may know that on the Thursday of the Anaheim show in, um, January, we pause as an industry to remember those who have passed away. And one of his buddies was there up on the screen uh, being remembered. And Scotty was um, sitting a couple of rows ahead of me. And he just quietly stood up for those four seconds that his uh, friend was being remembered during the program. And that I still gives me chills. You know, the, you know the, the heart that he had for those that uh, he worked with and admired. And so many of us on the NAM staff stood up for his four seconds a couple of years later when unfortunately it was uh, Scott's turn to be up there. Um, I, I wanted to introduce you to that uh, as we talk about him because I think that's gonna be enlightening to you as you hear him talk because uh, that's one thing that doesn't always come across is the heart that uh, we have in our industry. And to me, Scott had that in aces. Very well said, Dan. Yeah, this is one of the more touching interviews that we have in the collection. And I was really honored to be a part of it when we captured it at the 2018 NAMM show. Um, So without further ado, here is Scott Rogers. It's kind of odd how I got into my job. Uh, You know, everybody's got a backstory that's strange, but um, I got in this job because um, I was working at some sale barns, uh, auction barns out there in Abilene, four days a week right after school because we would go to school till noon and then I'd have to work in the afternoon. And then uh, my buddies that I've been friends since we were this, hall, this tall, in fact my dad was his Eagle Scout Master. Um, 
his dad was running the convention center. And so when the sale barn ended early, um, I'd go over there and work with them. You know, and all we were were janitors. We were emptying the trash, mopping, and doing setups. But one day this, this old man came from the back and he said, boys, would you mind coming to help us a minute? And I said, sure. We went back there and we were on a fly system. And he wanted to get the battens, that's what they're called, those pipes. He wanted to get all the battens stripped down and, and all the other. And we helped him for about two hours. And um, he said, would you mind coming out and helping us this weekend? And we said, sure. And this was 1973 or 74. And he said, well, we've got Deep Purple coming. And it was out there at Taylor County Coliseum. And so <laughs> we went out there and he's paying $5 an hour. Now, you need to understand 1973 is like $2.10 an hour and they're paying in cash. And we went out there and I've been in this job ever since. I've never gone to school or anything else. It's the OJT, if you will. And I've just never had a better job. At, you know, the highs are highs and the lows are very, very low. Because in our job, there is no do-overs. We do them right here, right now. We live bar by bar. But man, when it's done great, you get chills up and down your arms. Uh, Skug Baxter and I were talking this week, and um, he understands because when, when there's something going on on stage and you're, you're almost married to them, you can feel the, the passion. And, and you are as much part of the band as the band is because without a good audio guy, you're done. If people can't hear, if they can't feel the music, then, then there's no reason to be on stage. And I've, I've never had another job I've been out on tour, I've done it all, and I just, I'm so blessed by the Lord to get me here to this point. And it's, it's just the greatest. So tell me about some of your early gigs and, and looking back now at how technology has changed and, <laughs> and gear has changed. What were some of those early experiences? Oh gosh, it was, it was primitive. But at the time it was the best we had. You know, it was like the Beatles, if you go back and look at them, they were playing in stadiums with, with uh, football PA. And those old microphones that everybody used on every TV station, they had no fidelity at all. They would transmit, but that's about all you got. But we've come from that to the smallest mics in the world that will cover a whole lot more. And sound systems are getting smaller and smaller. Unlike me, I'm getting bigger and bigger, but the sound systems are getting small. And they're getting so good. And unfortunately for our business, everybody is now a sound man. I don't know what they do in their full-time jobs, but if you call somebody up at their home, they got music going or in their car, everybody needs to hear it a different way. And so we as sound professionals, we've got to get in the center so we please everybody. And sometimes that's hard to do, but I'll tell you that um, we've come from the days to where we had mile high PA. I mean, it would go up 18 feet sometimes because we, we didn't know how to distribute the sound. In fact, there was one company that came out and they had a, a uh, on a Leslie, there's a horn that spins like this. And they'd mount Leslie horns at the very top of the PA so it'd get the high end to go around and they'd just have it spinning. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's primitive, it was weird, but that's what we've done. That's what we've done for all those years. And we never had any safety, how guys are not dead today. There's just no telling, because we're climbing on the back of those PA. And in fact, when John Lennon got shot and killed, that day we were doing a Willie Nelson show, and um, we, uh, we had to ride the PA up. We were on the PA as they were pulling it up with the chain motors. And um, we got to the top about, I think it was about 26 feet, and we had to push this curtain back behind it. Well, once we got there, the only way down was with a rope. And so we just tied a rope off and slid in. We had no harnesses, anything else. Our hands were burning. 
But I mean, it's just so primitive and, and the PA was just so awful. I mean, but it's the best of its time. And you know, it's now an art form and everything is done off of math. It's just, a, it's an incredible art form and, and less is more. And we can distribute sound now and get all the corners covered to where we're only off by a few dBs, either left to right or upstage to downstage. And it's, it is the most important thing of the show. I'm, I, every day there's something new and you learn and that's the blessing about NAM. NAM is bringing in all these classes that you can go to because you must stay ahead of the curve. Otherwise you're gonna be left behind. And I'm, I'm just so thrilled that to be an audio guy. And, and I have to tell you the joy, um, I watch people cry in front of house because if you get the music right and you're working with them, there is that love and that feel that you get. Mm. You can feel it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Tell me about, uh, did you have any mentors, guys that sort of helped show you the ropes and guide you a little bit in your career? Yes, sir, and I also worked for Shoko, and so with Shoko, we'd be out on tours and we'd be doing things with them, and you know, you got to, you learn from Shoko Brothers as well, but a lot of times the band has their own engineers and you learn from them. And you know, I might be the king of the one-offs because uh, you know, I just do so many one-offs or you know, two or three days and be gone. But <clears throat> I've learned so much from so many different guys. It's just impossible to go through and say that this one individual helped me more than anyone else because no matter who they are, you, you can get some experience and some knowledge from everyone. And because every guy that comes in is going to do audio a little bit different. And so I'm just a sponge out there taking care of anything that's there. I'm soaking it up because sometimes it would work for you. You know, from how to put a lavalier on somebody to how to mic people up. All these things are important. And, you know, now then it's so video oriented that it's about the look as much as it's about the sound production side. You got to make sure that the cables are hidden. You got to make sure that there's clean paths because it is all about the look. And we've, we've had to come a long way because back in the rock and roll days, you just threw it up and went on because there wasn't any cameras. We've learned that we live for this camera mm. and we do live for it. How long did you work for Shoko? When was that? Oh gosh, all the way up until the time they sold. Um, they had a company called Very Light and Very Light was the first company that came out with moving lights. And um, they had a, Shoko was on one end mm -hmm. of, a, of this block. Manufacturing was about another block up and then management was up another two blocks. And um, Very Light was the first out, but unfortunately you also had to hire their guys. And so at first that was wonderful. And of course they were breaking down, they had motors and, and moving objects and, and all those things were breaking at that point. So you always had to take out a bunch of spares. But um, when the guys from uh, uh, Austin came out, they had, they had some moving lights, but you didn't have to hire their people. You could, you could hire you. Mm. And so that kind of started the end for Very Light because now then you can go out and get basically the same thing. You've got your own people, plus you can buy those instruments and take them home. Well, we were sitting around the shop and they said that uh, we're going to throw a barbecue and we're going to be down there at manufacturing because at that point they had sold Very Light. And, um, so they, send, they have interns that show up at Shoko and they can show up on their own dime, stay in their hotels, and it's part of their college program. You know, and a lot of those guys come from full sale and different outfits. But they come over there and they, they work for free. And half the day they're in class and the other half of the day they're working out in the shop, you know, cleaning cabinets, um, what I call zooming uh, speakers, you know, so you can make sure that everything works because something that Shoko did that a lot of other places didn't, 
they, they work on every speaker. They fire them all up before they leave. They, they fire up all the consoles. And in fact, Shoko was the original um, farm aid company. And we'd have as many as six or eight consoles and would set us all in a circle. And in that circle, they'd go to the channel one, make sure everybody have it. Channel two, make sure all the inputs and the outputs are working. Because this way, when you got to the show, you've got about a 99% chance of firing. Mm. And we've learned so much at Shoko, but they sent all the kids down there to clean out this warehouse. And um, they threw a party. We had barbecue and beer. It was the greatest time ever. Guys that have been away from Shoko forever and, and the ones that were still employed, we were all there. In fact, I've still got two beer mugs that said 30 years and still rocking, and I hang on to those like gold. But that's when we found out that we were getting sold. And, and it went to a great company. Claire is fantastic. Claire is on the cutting edge of cutting edge. And they bought so many different companies, but I hated to see Shoko go away. It was just such a staple. And you know, they were, you could sit out there and be in a 180 degree stereo because of the way those cabinets were pitched. And it's just a blessing to be with them. And we have done everybody from Stevie Ray to Eagles, you, you name it. And you know, I've been a part of that. I've been part of the one-offs. They started getting into corporate as well. And like I say, the speakers are getting smaller, but Claire is the best audio company that I know. And, and no matter what you need, they've got it. And they're always improving. They've never sat back and just said, well, you know, we're, we're the top. Those guys work hard. And they're men and women that are up there. They're all dedicated to one thing, and that's making music and to make it clean and, and to make it usable because you can get stuff that's so complicated. But they know how to fix it. They know how to, when you're there, and if you're a visiting front of house guy, they'll help you through all of it. And they, Shoko had a class and they would teach people. Even, even if you've been in the business for 20 years, if you went to work for Shoko, you um, had to go to that class. And this way they knew on the power, which hole that you're gonna be in, if, which is gonna go to front of house, which is gonna go to the monitors. And this way, if guys have never worked together before, they had continuity. And that's what worked out so well. And I've just been blessed to be around those guys. We do a lot of church. There's churches now that have better PAs than a lot of production companies. And they certainly have better audio, and I mean better video because it is so important. And the house of worship side is exploding. Um, Yamaha's deep into it, all the manufacturers are because people now are going to church and they expect to hear the same thing that they get on the radio, the same thing they watch on television. So technicians have got to be better. It just can't be some volunteer that he learned from his dad because they are wanting perfection and we have to strive for that perfection. And, and I always try to give them the best I've got. And even if I'm sick or tired or whatever, we put on our show face and we go out there and we make it work because that's our job. Yeah, and every night is a circus, right? Every <laughs> night. And no matter these people that come out with these well-laid plans, you know, that it's 7-10, it doesn't. You start the show and you hang on and when it's over, it's over. Because things are going to change. We're humans. People are going to go up to speak in the microphone just like at TEC. The Les Paul Awards. It's the greatest show that there is, period. They go up there and they talk in those mics and sometimes they get lost. They don't look at the teleprompter. We've had a few that have been um, under the weather and they'll go over there and not be able to put some sentences together and we just wait till they get done. And so you just cannot look at those things. I just look at them as a guideline and I scoot them to the side on my, my console and off we go and, and we just have to be ready to go at any time. So once again, that was Scott Rogers from his 2018 NAM oral history interview. Always great to hear him. Such mm. a great guy. Um, and we miss him dearly. Uh, up next, we've got 
another person who's doing amazing things in the music industry, and that is Carrie Kays. Absolutely. It's talk about watching a pioneer right in front of you, uh, <laughs> running and changing and having all these people influenced almost immediately by her goodwill and her team and all that they're doing. It's really, really cool. Now, if you're not familiar with soundgirls.org, get yourself familiar with soundgirls.org. <laughs> it's a wonderful organization. Um, and even though I'm not sound or girl i have benefited greatly by going to their website on a regular basis I, I i always seem to learn something i'm introduced to different people um i really really like what they're doing and they're doing very similar things to what our friends over at um um roadies of color roadies united. of color united thank you um <laughs> You know, and that is perpetuating their niche in the industry as front of house engineers, having more awareness, letting people know that females are very capable of doing this. And here's a long list of those who have had amazing careers, who are technically trained, who have uh, experiences in certain venues. It's a very similar sort of thing. Um, and that's what's so great about it. Uh, in addition, what they do is... Uh, write articles and interview people and really establish the history, both in the past and what's happening now, and including um, everybody, it, you know, the, the, the pioneers, uh, there was a great article about a, a woman that I got to know uh, named Helen Dance. Uh, she was a producer and record uh, engineer in the thirties and forties, and they have a wonderful article about her. And now, Otherwise, she might be forgotten, uh, certainly at the level in which their article talked about her career. And then on the other hand, people who are chiseling away at this career right now, people who are um, working nonstop uh, in their careers um, now. And I love that. Uh, you know, so, so often uh, I wish that the oral history program at NAM would include young up and coming and we're trying to do that a little bit but our focus has really been the history and they are able to do both and i really admire that about them i really admire their team uh very clever people very smart individuals uh very respectful um so again there's there's my uh recommendation of the podcast is check out their website and learn from them Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's great too because um, Carrie uh, brings up something uh, that both Bill and Lance of uh, Roadies of Color United bring up, which is, you know, they're just wanting it, this to be like a positive, productive way of being inclusive to mm -hmm. all. You know, there's right. they're not they're not you know focusing on one specific thing or excluding other people for you know. It, putting one person ahead of the other person it's for everybody and they want to do it in a positive and productive mm -hmm. way, which I think is, you know, such a great thing to do and the right way to go about it. Um, and so just really great that both her and Rudy's of color United are doing this and I'm sure lots of other people are doing it too. Um, so just great to hear the, the girls fighting for their, their chance to be front of house because it sounds like an awesome job <laughs> and doing it so respectfully absolutely doing it the right way as you say absolutely mm -hmm. 
we admire them very much and uh, wish them all the best as they continue to pioneer. And when we do get a chance to look back at their early days, which is happening now, uh, mm -hmm. we're going to really be impressed at how far they've come. I, I guarantee it. So with that, let's, uh, boy, that's quite a buildup. Um, so let's uh, hear from her now, um, now that we're done talking about her. Uh, here's Carrie talking about a little bit about her career, which is very impressive, and her ideas about Sound Girls and how it got started, as well as her involvement with organizations like the Parnellis. So what makes a good gig for you? Hmm. Um, it's kind of hard to answer at this. I mean, I'm, right now I'm only... I only work for Pearl Jam and their singer, so, and we always carry production. So there's a whole bunch of variables that are, we don't have to deal with. Mm. Um, and so once you eliminate to the best of your ability, all the variables, whether it's the production you're carrying, equipment that you want, um, the crew that you want, being able to control weather elements. Um, once you deal with all the variables down to what you can and can't control, but you have plans for everything, shows kind of just get on stage and we play a solid show, which I think is the end goal. It's not everybody's, it's not every single night is going to be the most amazing show for us on stage it's really hard to phrase because that makes it sound like people are like not working hard but they are um because out front it looks like it's the most amazing thing every night um for us we're going to work and the end result is having an amazing show and for to have seventy thousand people in tears and singing along to the songs. That's the end goal. So, but we're at the, we went to work. We're working right now. So it's not like, like that's our, our goal is to make those 70,000 people happy. Does that make sense? Mm, of course, yeah. But it's, it's not another day, but we've done our job. Mm. If we, if, they are singing and they're happy and they're in tears and they're making us be in tears and we've done our job, band and crew, mm -hmm. so. Very cool, that's really neat. Mm -hmm. I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, the genesis of Soundgirl and, and <laughs> how that came about. Well, that came about, um, which some of the women that were on that panel are here right at NAM right now. Um, in 2012, I was invited to be on a panel at AES with the ridiculous title of the Women of Live Sound or something like that. Um, it was put on by uh, Women's Audio Mission, which they do super important work, um, and we're thankful for them. Um, but when I was first called about it, I was like, I go, I'm not doing this. It's 2012 and we're still having panels that are titled this. This is ridiculous. And I'm like, I don't want to be any part of us. Oh, here's it. Come look at the anomaly. The five, here's the five women of Life Sound. Well, that's not true. 
because there's more than five of us at that point in time. Um, and it's not a freak show. And it's like, why can't we just have gender neutral panels? Invite engineers because you want to hear their experience and what they can share with the community. Um, but one of the women on the panel, she, I had worked with her before, before I had known her for several years. Um, she's like, just come and do it. I was like, fine. I'll, she talked me into it. The other, there was five of us on the panel. I had never heard of or met two of the women. The other woman, Michelle, we both started our careers at the same time. Um, and we both knew of each other. We knew each other's names and we were kind of working in the same, she was doing front of house for the spin doctors. We were kind of in the same alternative scene that you would have thought our paths would have crossed. Um, and they didn't. It took 20 plus years to meet each other. Um, you know, and that was before internet, so you couldn't do a Google search and find somebody. Um, so the five of us were on this panel. Um, we all met about an hour before. And everybody was just like, oh my, I've never been in a room full of my peers in my whole career. I was, we were like, yeah, this is the first time we're actually in a room of our peers. Um, and we all stayed in touch after that. And we just, we kept talking about oh, like how great, what great energy that panel had and meeting each other. And um, so we wanted to do something and, you know, finally, me, Michelle and I were just talking. I'm like, what, I'm like, what if we just build a website that has resources on it that w women can come to and connect, find other women, stay in touch? Um, I go, because we were just like, I'm like, it's 20, 25 years later, we're still walking to buildings like, never seen a woman doing sound. I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, uh, I'm like, there's more than five of us. And I'm like, so it was kind of like, we'll build it and they'll come. We'll find them. And that's what we did. Mm. So we just started, we, we didn't start with like, okay, we're going to sit down and write a mission statement and this is what we're going to do and this is where we want to be in five years. We're like, let's just freaking build a web website to find other women in audio because they're there. Um, and everything that we've done since then has just been through need. So, I mean, we're, we're small, keep the board small, decisions can happen really fast. People will call it, how about we do this? That sounds awesome. Let's do it. How are we going to do that? Um, and that's, that's how and why. Very cool. Yeah. So what have been some of the projects? Mm -hmm. You, you've worked on it you think are pretty meaningful well uh, to me the first one that's the most meaningful is um, that we exist and if you do a Google search for women in audio you're gonna find something because that, that's the first thing of how discouraging would it be if you were 13 and you're like you're 13 year old girl like I want to produce EDM. How do I like? And then you get all men. You do a Google search. You're like, oh, right there. You're like, well, I guess I can't do that. I guess men only do this. Um, so 
by creating the website, there's a place, and then, you know, and it's no fault of the trade magazines because they are covering the biggest tours and the biggest albums and the biggest producers and engineers as they, um, they can't do, uh, they can't feature women every month. Can't even feature women twice a year. It's fine. Uh, we were like, we're gonna, we're gonna do, start doing feature profiles on women, in-depth profiles. We'll do them once a month. And at first, we were like, sure, do, are we, do we really want to do them once a month? What if we run out of women? Because <laughs> at that point, we didn't know how many w women working in audio there might be. Um, still don't have accurate numbers, but we have a, over six thousand members worldwide. So. Um, they're there and we have not run out of women to feature. So <laughs> eight, six years, seven years later, we are still doing a monthly feature profile, um, which is, is really great. You can now women audio engineers come up if you do Google searches and you'll actually see pictures of what women audio engineers look like. Not, not people that are posed or a model for, cause someone needed to do a photo shoot, you know, so. Um, so that, that's been pretty important. We also have given women that wish to, I think we probably this year we have maybe 14, maybe 16 contributors that are contributing blogs or we call them blogs, but they're basically articles and they range from anything of just, you know, their advice to get through. A day at work. Some of the blogs are very technical. Um, best practices, how to, you know, um, which is it gives women an outlet that, and they have gone on. We've had two of our bloggers now. They're writing for Pro Sound Web, mm. um, which you know, they're they featured their blogs from us on Pro Sound Web first, and now they work, write on a regular basis for them. Um, and it's just, the articles just have a different attitude towards them. Um, so it, you know, it get, I think it gives the women writing the articles a sense of accomplishment and empowerment by having a outlet and people are not intimidated reading and from other women, you know, there are, so those have been important. We've been doing workshops and camps and, um, I mean, I, I think we're, I think everyone's proud of the organization as a whole. Um, and then, you know, be, you know, finding a place in the industry that we can be vocal about, the discrimination and bias and sexual harassment and misogyny in our industry, but in a proactive, positive way. Um, so that we are able to, you know, start breaking down doors and getting people listening. I'm like, I did not, you know, I knew that this existed. I didn't know it existed to this extent. Um, what can we do? Um, and I think right now we have uh, with our, you know, we partner with a ton of other women's organizations. Um, 
we have an, uh, a starting partnership with AES that's been very productive. Um, so, you know, putting all of us together in those forces and having super proactive, positive conversations of how we can change things, make people aware and make them want to change things without them like, well, the girls are just excluding us now, which our organization doesn't exclude anybody. And Michelle and I were very conscious of that when we started. We we're like, we've been excluded. Why would we exclude anybody? That's not, this is not what it's about if men stay out. It's how do we have a productive and professional audio community? And, you know, like we've always felt the community has been good to me. It's been good to Michelle. We both love working in the industry and it's how can we give back? And I think there's a lot of people that they want to mentor and help kids coming up um, and I think it's it's important for the industry to do that because you don't you can't just learn a craft at school it mm. takes years and years of practice you know I made a speech last night and for the Parnellis and I was like like we spend years mastering our craft but it can never be mastered because it's going to change tomorrow something's going to change the people you're working with the technology Someone's gonna come up with a new theory, best practice of how to do something. So, you know, you, I'm still learning, but I want to be able to pass on a lot of the those growing pains that we didn't have anybody to, we just stumbled through it. Mm. You know, you look back and oh, I can't, I should've done that, but you don't know when you're 24. <laughs> And you don't have uh, you don't have a role model. You don't have anybody you can call. What should I do? So, so that was uh, again Carrie Keys of Sound Girls. Uh, great story, like we were talking about before, uh, and so inspirational, and uh, and just really making some great uh, progress in front of mm. house. Uh, and I know that we were talking, we've been talking about roadies of color as well, kind of, you know, here and there. And we're going to uh, hear next from actually the other co-founder of Roadies of Color United, which is Lance Casey Jackson. Yep. Great, great uh, interviews for sure. And and I really, again, uh, I'm so happy about the evolution that we are presenting, you know, from the, from the early days. Um, to, to, to now and, and how organizations and individuals are really making a difference. And they're not just going to the gig, not by a long shot. And these were just a few of the representatives of front of house in the NAM oral history collection. And we can't wait to have more. Uh, Mike brought this up earlier, but I think it's a great opportunity to remind you that there is only one reason why we have the interviews that we have. And that is because people like you have suggested somebody that we haven't yet interviewed or didn't think about or didn't know about or didn't have contact with. So assume nothing when it comes to our intelligence, <laughs> just send us an email. If we interview uh, some people on your list, great. That makes us feel like we're going in the right direction. And in that list will probably be a few that we haven't. And that's even better because that's how we grow this collection. <laughs> Very well said, Dan. 
So let's jump into this interview. This was captured and premiered uh, at NAMM's Believe in Music Week in 2021. A very good interview with Lance Casey Jackson. He's going to be talking a little bit about his touring career and a lot about Roadies of Color United. So here we go, Lance Casey Jackson. This is around a time that I think some of the first actual um, online roadie networking really started happening. I think roadie.net was one of the first actual instances that I can remember uh, where there was something you could join and there was other people that did what you did. You could exchange information, you could network. So there was a little bit of a proliferation of that in 2009. And there's one particular uh, organization, I'm not gonna name them, but I was really excited because they had a pretty exciting platform. It was um, a different type of network platform. You could have your own profiles. Uh, you could meet other people. Uh, you could invite people. And it was, I was thinking it was like the coolest thing. I was really excited about it. So started inviting people. And I noticed that I would get these uh, messages from the moderator. Do you know these people? You know, and I would reply back, you know, uh, yeah, this is so-and-so. I, I recommended them. Yeah, I know them. So they would let that person in. Then after a while, it's kind of become kind of regular, you know, every time you make a recommendation. And the only thing that, you know, these people had in common were people of color. So Bill Reeves and I, the co-founder of Roadies of Color, were having a conversation one day. And we kind of were looking at this site. And we started scrolling through and we noticed for maybe every 100 faces, because they had a very large membership that you see like one person of color, one female, scroll a little more, a little more, a little more. And it's like, man, there's hardly uh, no people of color here. So Bill suggested, well, why don't we start our own thing? Because Bill and I, two years prior to that, I had started an internet TV network. I taught myself HTML, uh, and we built an online video network. We had 24-hour streaming. Uh, you could upload your own videos. So Bill's like, yeah, we could, we could do something like this. Let's, let's start our own uh, social network. So March of 2009, uh, we started Roadies of Color United. And we wanted to do something different than what was presented out there. We used the same platform uh, that they used, but we weren't going to turn anybody away. You know, the idea was to have a place for us and by us, that being people of color, black people, um, non-white people. But at the same time, we weren't going to turn any white people away. You know, because the ultimate goal for roadies of color is to create a situation where there would not be a need for roadies of color. Lance, I'm sort of curious from your standpoint um, about the, the important message that needs to be out there. You know, you were talking about um, a huge awareness in 2020 for your efforts. And I'm kind of wondering, what is the message? What is it that still needs to be out there, do you think, that uh, um, our industry needs to hear? 
I think um, more more collaborative efforts like the ongoing ones that are happening now. Uh, there are people that are doing uh, positive things to, like I say, um, how about I say, to make amends for how things were. I don't think anybody, the majority of people in this business are intentionally racist. Uh, you have um, people who tend to feel comfortable working with people that they know, and they're not too comfortable going outside of their circle is a good way to put it. But at the same time, there's this uh, misnomer that people of color can't do rock and roll, can't do country. And that's BS. Um, I think one of the things that we kept hearing over and over, and um, I thought it was interesting, uh, we had um, Ed Kircher from uh, Incubus was one of our attendees at our conference. He was a guest of Joe Gallagher from Gallagher Staging, who was one of our sponsors for our event, which we had really good turnout on sponsorship uh, for our event. And he's, what did he, how did he put it? Um, it's really good to know where I can find qualified people of color because I'd like to get more people of color involved in my productions. Well, this was a reoccurring comment that we've heard through throughout the year because when we came out of our event, we initially wanted to create a minority owned business directory of, of companies that worked in the industry. This was, uh, was going to be one of our missions for 2020. Anyway, long story short, after the Floyd murder and uh, some of the interviews, um, it kept coming up about uh, where to find qualified people of color. We would hire more people if we knew where to find them. So we wanted to redirect our effort in that our membership, membership roles for the professional association, there will be an option for each member uh, to be listed in a directory. So if somebody's looking for a qualified person of color or a woman, that they could look in that directory. And we are taking at least three references for every application, which everybody gets vetted. So that if you do choose someone off of our directory, that they're qualified to do the job. And keep in mind that um, some of the roadies of color are as white as you are. They're, you know, um, diversity and inclusion is what we're about. So they'll also be listed, you know, and it's, it's, it's a group of like-minded people. And like I said, I don't think anybody is going out of their way to be racist, but I think there's some subliminal things that uh, the way that we were raised, um, I'm almost 65 years old. Um, I know that from the time I was a little kid, you get these little things that are implanted in your brain, like the good guy always wears a white hat. The bad guy wears a black hat. Um, be afraid of the dark. Africa is the dark continent. You have all of these little subliminal things that even if you take a little kid, a little black kid, and you give them, have two little dolls, they're Barbies. They're the exact same molded plastic, except one's dark and one's light. The child will tend to pick the little white doll. You know, so there's some things that we still have to work on. But I think uh, the first step of a thousand mile journey is just that, the first step. Uh, we did an open letter to the industry. 
I had the privilege to sit down with uh, Bill Leabody. I uh, spoke to Chris Groton, some pretty big time production managers in mainstream rock and roll out there um, that also uh, feel the need for diversity and inclusion. So they were signatories on our open letter that we put out to the industry just for people to be aware to deviate from what they have been doing, uh, give it a try. Um, same thing with some companies, you know, we're trying to get more people into shop level positions because everybody wants to be an engineer. They want to be the LD, but on the minority side, there's not a lot of rigors. There's not a lot of people who know how to patch systems. Uh, the integration part of it, like I mentioned, uh, Dante and some of the other networking protocols to fill some of the void areas, you know what I mean? Um, because the industry is changing in that direction. It's getting more technical and it's also becoming more corporate on the business side. So I would just tell people to be open-minded, you know, the next time that they consider when they're going to hire. Um, then, like I said, don't be afraid to collaborate, investigate some of these other organizations. There's a couple of really cool things. Uh, the Tour Production Association has just evolved. Um, there are other resources to find other people, uh, Never Famous, uh, Jerome Crooks' organization, um, Noel Skaggs' organization, uh, Diversify the Stage, uh, She is the Music.org, Sound Girls. Um, just like people are finding us, we're finding these organizations. On our uh, website, roadiesofcolorunited.com, uh, we have been compiling a list of these various resources for uh, other people to share and to investigate. Collaboration is, the, I think, the key to fixing a lot, a lot of what, what needs to happen. All right, you guys. That was Lance Jackson, and um, what a fabulous interview and uh, historical, you know, really important for our collection. I'm really glad that we got to interview both of those guys, as well as all of the people that we heard from today. Uh, this will uh, conclude our podcast focused on the evolution of front of house. And we thank all of you guys for joining us. Yeah, it's uh, definitely been a fantastic uh, podcast episode, I think. And it just really shows like we were talking about in the beginning um, just seeing that evolution of it from, from, you know, Shoko and them building their own rigs and figuring out what can be indestructible and, and all that. <laughs> uh, and then looking into the future of what front of house is going to be with, uh, with Carrie and Lance and Bill. Uh, and I love that that's kind of how we're ending it with, you know, mm. looking to the future and what we can, what we can do to continue to improve the front of house. And I hope, I hope everybody when they are able to, when you're able to go to a show again, which will hopefully be sometime soon, you will appreciate a little bit more of what the front of house does. And you'll maybe notice them a little bit more and see how much work they really do and what really goes into it. So. Absolutely. And I think this is also a perfect time to start encouraging people um, to go back as soon as you can um, mm -hmm. and then keep going back. You know, I, I was reminded recently that as things open up in certain uh, fields, there's maybe a rush 
to say, oh, yay, we can do that again. And then it quickly dies down. I think I think all of us should have a renewed energy towards making this a part of our regular experience is to go listen to live music when we can and keep that as something. And maybe you can budget for it. You know, maybe it's once a month. That's certainly more than we can do now. Maybe it's more than that. But I do definitely want to encourage everybody to think about that because there are a lot of professions out there that are professionals and have a job because you go to live events. And I I'm, I, I sometimes forget about that. I think I did before the pandemic and I remember it now. And I think I'm going to make this a, a regular thing for me and my family. And I encourage you to do the same thing. And here's a quick tip for you. So when everything starts opening back up and we can go to concerts again and you're buying tickets and looking where to sit, buy some seats around where front of house sets up. They usually <laughs> set up right in the middle. You'll get the best sound possible because they're going to be listening and what they're hearing is what you'll be hearing. So well a little said. tip, always and, sit in your front of house. <laughs> and you can watch all of the amazing stuff that they do that they That's have to true. do throughout the whole show. I mean, focus on the, on the, you know, the performers on stage, but right. like also, you know, focus take a look on at what they're doing. The That's scenes. right. Look at here. It's probably pretty cool, but maybe yeah. don't talk to them. They, they're probably pretty busy. <laughs> <laughs> They've probably been working for a couple hours already. So they're a little focused. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you everybody for uh, listening today and watching. If you are on nam.org, um, this has been the music history project and the evolution of front of house. We will be back again in two weeks for a brand new episode. And until then, bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org. <laughs>